Do you understand that this world in which we live is overrun by seven billion little kingdoms of self? Individuals seeking to establish their own rule at the expense of Almighty God, their Creator. And all those kingdoms are at war with the kingdom of God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. As a believer, how often do you genuinely consider your life in relation to God's kingdom? When you pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, do you really mean it? Or has the word just become memorized, rote, and routine? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part three of his series titled, Lord Teach Us to Pray, looking at how Jesus Christ teaches his followers to pray. Think about it. If you're a follower of Christ, you're part of his spiritual kingdom, a place and standing that should merit your deepest desire and highest devotion. In prayer, first the recognition of God's glory, followed by the advances of his kingdom. But is that the priority in your own prayers? Do you long to see the advance of God's kingdom? Or might you be seeking to advance your own kingdom? Keep all that in mind as we join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. November of 2001, there was a national survey of Americans. 68% of those surveyed said that they believed in God as the all-knowing, all-powerful creator. It's a pretty shocking statistic, actually. 68% believe in a personal creator God. But only 23% of the people surveyed in the U.S. believed that Satan is a real person as opposed to merely a personification of evil. As surprising as that is, it's frankly shocking to learn that in 2008, George Barna did a survey of professing Christians and found that only 35% of self-described Christians believe that Satan is a living person rather than a symbol of evil. Now, self-described is the key expression. I think many of those people probably are not in Christ. But regardless of professing Christians in the U.S., only 35% believe that Satan is a real person. Regardless of what the majority of Americans might believe, or by those statistics, the majority of professing Christians might believe, the Bible is crystal clear. There exists a spirit being of great power, of incredible intelligence, and of unimaginable evil. He is engaged in a titanic conflict to unseat God and to destroy God's rule on this planet. As far-fetched as that may sound, that is exactly what Jesus our Lord himself taught. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. The crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? This isn't the Messiah, is it? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, No, don't even think that. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, the Pharisees here evidence that they believed in a personal being 
who oversaw other personal beings and were set against and opposed to God. Jesus goes on to affirm that view. Look at verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Abraham Lincoln was not the first one to say that, just so you know. Verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Notice Jesus is describing Satan, the adversary, as a real person. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus says Satan is a real person and he has a kingdom. Verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So here Jesus acknowledges the personhood of Satan, the reality that he has a kingdom, and that his kingdom is set in complete opposition to the kingdom of God. Verse 29, How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Satan is alive and well on planet earth. He is called, in John chapter 12, verse 31, the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the god of this world. Now, that does not mean that Satan has complete control of the created order, the created world. God does. The Scripture is very clear about that. And he has delegated that control to his son, Jesus Christ. But... There is an aspect of this cosmos, that's the word that's used, this world that Satan does control. It is the world system. Here's how one lexicon, uh, Bishop Trench, defines this idea of, of the cosmos in this sense. It's not the physical world. Instead, it is that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, impulses, aims, and aspirations at any time current in the world. Let me summarize it this way. The cosmos that Satan rules is the floating mindset of any age. Every age has its own way of thinking, its own values, its own ideas, the things that it promotes. Our our age is no different. And in every age, Satan is the god of that mindset of the age in which we live. He shapes it. He defines it. He pushes it. He promotes it. Now, this world system, the set of values and ideas that are at any point present in the world, that is his domain, but his subjects are twofold. His subjects are, first of all, a huge number of angels. In fact, Revelation 12 tells us that when God threw Satan out of heaven, he took with him a third of the angels, those powerful beings created by God to serve God and to serve mankind. A third of them went with Satan. They are now fallen angels, or they're also called demons. Satan rules over those fallen creatures, powerful, intelligent creatures. Secondly, he rules over every single human being who has not repented of his sins and embraced Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, according to Jesus himself, you are under the control of Satan, whether you feel it or not, whether you sense it or not. Jesus said in John 8, 44, of those who were not believers, he said, your father is the devil. You're under his control. 
Ephesians 2.2 says that prior to conversion, every single person on the planet walks in lockstep with the prince of the power of the air. They think they're living life on their own completely free, but they are in slavery to his kingdom. So understand then, Satan is a king, and his kingdom stands diametrically opposed to God. But here's where I don't want you to misunderstand. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad teaching out there that has given Satan way too much power. A lot of it comes to us through the charismatic movement. Understand this. Satan's kingdom poses no real threat to God and his kingdom. We don't believe in some kind of dualism in which two fairly equal forces are in conflict with each other and the outcome is uncertain. Star Wars makes for great entertainment, but it is not a picture of reality on this planet. Satan is not sovereign in our world either. God is. Martin Luther was absolutely right when he said, Satan is God's devil. Picture Satan like a a bad dog on a leash completely under the control of God. Satan can do absolutely nothing without God's permission. You see this in the Scripture. You remember in the first chapter of Job, Job one twelve, where Satan comes before God, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him personally, on his body. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Satan shows up. He asks God's permission to deal with Job. God gives him permission, but only so far. And Satan goes and does only that until he comes back for more permission. He's God's devil. He's on a leash. Jesus describes it this way in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. He says, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I'm not going to let that happen. It's not going that far. You're going to be tempted. You're going you're to betray me but your faith will not fail. Satan is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not sovereign. But he and his kingdom stand in violent opposition to our God. If you doubt that, just turn on the television, pick up a newspaper, read a magazine, or go attend a few classes at the local college. Or better yet, go back to your alma mater, which you thought was okay in your day, and sit in the classes and listen to what you hear. We must remember that the battle in which we are engaged, however, is not a battle against people. Christians often miss this. You know, somebody is championing abortion. Some person is championing homosexual rights or or same-sex marriage or whatever it is, and that person becomes the enemy. Listen, that person is not the enemy. They are enslaved to Satan and his world system. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, We wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood. It's not people, but rather against spiritual forces. That's where the real battle is happening. So one opposing kingdom to God's kingdom is Satan's kingdom. But his is not the only kingdom. This may shock you. Satan's is not the only kingdom in our world that is in opposition to God. You say, what's left? you got God, you got Satan. What else could there be? Another kingdom that is opposed to the reign of God is the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self. It is true that all unbelievers are part of Satan's kingdom, whether they realize it or not. There is also a sense in which we could say that there are as many opposing kingdoms in the world as there are people. Because every person who has refused to bow his or her knee to Jesus Christ 
has set up his own kingdom and declared whom to be king? Himself. In the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, a false Aslan, a false Christ is presented as the real thing. Really, it's, it's Satan in disguise in the sort of imagery that Lewis uses. A faithful few remain loyal to Aslan, the true Christ, but most of Narnia falls for the deception and follows the false Aslan. Really follow Satan. But in a brilliant insight that is so common to C.S. Lewis, he describes one group, the dwarves, that simply refuses to take sides in this cosmic struggle. When they're asked to join the battle against the usurpers, the dwarfs answer with these really chilling words. Here's what the dwarfs say. You can't take us in. We don't want any kings. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Tragically, this is how most people are. This is how most human beings are. They're under the control of Satan, but they don't know it. Instead, they're their own king. Reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. You remember he was walking around his palace and he was reflecting and he said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar was for Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't nearly as concerned about building Babylon as he was building a kingdom for himself. That's really what it was all about. There are millions of people in the Metroplex who think exactly like this. And so when you pray, your kingdom come, when we pray that, we are acknowledging the reality that we live in the middle of kingdoms in conflict. Do you really appreciate the reality that you live in a world of ideas and values that are dominated by Satan himself? Do you understand that this world in which we live is overrun by seven billion little fiefdoms, little kingdoms of self, individuals seeking to establish their own rule at the expense of Almighty God, their Creator? And all those kingdoms are at war with the kingdom of God. That lies behind this petition. To fully understand this petition, we have to understand the conflict between opposing kingdoms. Secondly, we have to understand the character of God's kingdom. In verse 10, Jesus says, pray this, your kingdom come. What exactly is this kingdom for which we need to pray? Well, it's obvious when you read the Gospels that this idea of the kingdom was a crucial part of the ministry of Jesus. In fact, Mark records as Jesus' first sermon. It wasn't his first sermon chronologically. It's the first one Mark records. In Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. It's here. It's right around the corner. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was at the core of Jesus' message. It also was at the core of the message of his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus sends the twelve out to preach. And he says, as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was their message. It was a message of the kingdom. Even after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in those 40 days 
between his resurrection and his ascension. According to Acts 1-3, Jesus spent those 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. The kingdom continued to be a part of the ministry of the rest of the New Testament church and the apostles there in the early church. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Let me just walk you through how pervasive this theme was. He taught them about the kingdom in those 40 days between the resurrection and ascension, and so this became their message. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, Philip in Samaria, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. This was Paul's message as well. In Acts chapter 19, in Ephesus, we read this, Acts 19, verse 8, He entered the synagogue there and continued speaking out boldly for three months. And here was his message, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 25, as as Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, he was there for three years, you will no longer see my face. For three years he was preaching the kingdom to them. Paul continues this as the theme of his ministry, even during his first Roman imprisonment. Turn to the very end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verse 30. He stayed two full years there in Rome in his own rented quarters. This is the first imprisonment. And he was welcoming all who came to him. And what was he teaching and preaching? Verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So this was and continued to be a huge theme of both Jesus and the apostles into the New Testament. Now let's go back to Matthew 6. The word translated kingdom there in verse 10 occurs 162 times in the New Testament. Most of those references are in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Most frequently when the word kingdom appears, it is used in the phrase, the kingdom of God. But Matthew prefers to use an expression, the kingdom of heaven. Now, I grew up in, in more heavily dispensational circles than I'm comfortable now. I am a as my mentor likes to say, I'm a leaky dispensationalist. I believe that Israel is not the church, and I believe that there is yet, there are yet promises that God has promised to fulfill to the ethnic descendants of Abraham. That's where my dispensationalism stops. But for some, where I grew up, they wanted to see between these two expressions, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and this was true for the Schofield Reference Bible that I grew up with, they wanted to see something different. Those two phrases were describing something different. But when you examine the parallel passages, one of which I'll show you in a moment, it becomes clear that in reality the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven describe exactly the same thing. So why would Matthew say it differently? Why would he say the kingdom of heaven? Well, he's writing to Jewish people who have a predisposition against saying directly the name of God. That's why, for example, Jesus puts in the, in the mouth of the young Jewish boy we call the prodigal son, what does he say? I have sinned against heaven. What does that mean? It's a, it's a polite and respectful way to say God who lives in heaven. 
So understand then that the kingdom of God is the same as the kingdom of heaven where God rules. But what is this kingdom? Well, it refers to the rule or the reign of God. Or more precisely, let me give you this definition. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the realm over which God rules. That's all it means. The realm over which God rules. Now, when we examine the New Testament evidence, we find that there are two distinct forms this kingdom takes. First of all, there is the present form of this kingdom, the kingdom of God. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is already here. In fact, it was already here when Jesus was on the planet 2,000 years ago. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, it says, Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. When's it going to be here, Jesus? He answered them and said, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's already here right now, Jesus said. But its present form is not a geographical kingdom. It is not a geopolitical kingdom. And Jesus made this very clear to Pilate in John chapter 18 and verse 36. You remember Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, listen, Pilate, let me make sure you understand. I am a king, but I'm not a king, and I don't have a kingdom in the sense you're thinking. There's not a piece of real estate right now that I'm claiming as my own. There's not a group of people on that real estate that I'm claiming as my own. If my kingdom were of this world, Jesus goes on to say, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Why? Because it is a spiritual kingdom. In its present form, it's a spiritual kingdom, not a geographical kingdom, not a a literal political kingdom. Jesus makes this very clear over in Matthew chapter 19. Turn there for a moment. Matthew 19. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. This young synagogue leader, leader in his community, has already developed a great deal of wealth, maybe from his own industry, maybe from his inheritance. But he's concerned about eternal life, and he comes and throws himself down before Jesus and says, I want to have eternal life. Well, Jesus knew this young man. He knew his heart. He knew that he had an idol, an idol that had to be torn down. That idol was what he owned, what he possessed. And so Jesus puts his finger on that idol and demands that he give it up. He says, I want you to go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Look at his response in verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now watch the conversation that follows. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man... Now notice this expression to enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so here he uses the expression kingdom of heaven, and he's talking about entering it. Verse 24, again I say to you, he's going to say it slightly differently with the same basic content. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a literal needle, in other words, it's impossible, for a rich man, and watch this expression, to enter the kingdom of God.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Tom will have part four for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, Tom, today you introduced the topic of spiritual warfare. Would you suggest a few ways that we as believers might prepare for it? You know, Bill, I think it starts with understanding the reality that there is spiritual warfare. Sadly, I think a lot of Christians either deny it altogether or their whole concept of the spiritual warfare we're engaged in is flawed. They think it's something mystical, something existential. Instead, what the scriptures teach is that the warfare that goes on between us and Satan happens in our minds. It's it's ideologies, it's false religion, it's the temptations that come in this life. And so we need to prepare for that warfare in two ways. One, by submitting ourselves to Christ and being willing to follow him. But the way we do that is by being informed and instructed and following the teaching of his word. That's how we're armed to fight the way Satan fights. And that's with ideas and thoughts. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.